Real News. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is January 22nd, 2020. And yesterday we had uh, impeachment, 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 right? And they all went nuts. Nuts. So I thought today we could talk about that a little bit. Uh, We could talk about how things are turning out for them, how things are turning out for us, and, you know, the comments that the president has made in regards to this uh, and what the mainstream media, um, a.k.a. the fake news, are saying about this. So let's start with the first couple of minutes into the um, impeachment trial of President Trump so we can understand what they're trying to do. Take a listen. The Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. The majority leader is recognized. I'd like to state that for the information of all senators, the trial briefs filed yesterday by the parties have been printed and are now at each senator's desk. The following documents will be submitted to the Senate for printing in the Senate Journal. The precept issued January 16, 2020. The writ of summons issued on January 16, 2020 and the receipt of summons dated January 16, 2020. The following documents, which were received by the Secretary of the Senate, will be submitted to the Senate for printing in the Senate Journal pursuant to the order of January 16, 2020. The answer of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, to the articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives against him on January 16, 2020, received by the Secretary of the Senate on January 18, 2020. The trial brief filed by the House of Representatives received by the Secretary of the Senate on January 18, 2020. The trial brief filed by the President received by the Secretary of the Senate on January 20, 2020. The replication of the House of Representatives received by the Secretary of the Senate on January 20, 2020 and the rebuttal brief filed by the House of Representatives received by the Secretary of the Senate on January 21, 2020. Without objection, the foregoing documents will be printed in the congressional record. I note the presence in the House of the Senate, in the, cha- in the Senate chamber, of the managers on the part of the House of Representatives and counsel for the President of the United States. Mr. Chief Justice. The majority leader is recognized. I send to the desk a list of floor privileges for closed sessions. It's been agreed to by both sides. I ask that it be inserted in the record and agreed to by unanimous consent. Without objection. With the further information of all senators, I'm about to send a resolution to the desk providing for an outline of the next steps in these proceedings. It will be debatable by parties for two hours, equally divided. Senator Schumer will then send an amendment to the resolution to the desk. Once that amendment has been offered and reported, we'll have a brief recess. When we reconvene, Senator Schumer's amendment will be debatable by the parties for two hours. Upon the use or yielding back of time, I intend to move to table Senator Schumer's amendment. And so, Mr. Chief Justice, I send a resolution to the desk and ask that it be read. The clerk will read the resolution. 
Senate Resolution 483 to provide for related procedures concerning the articles of impeachment against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. Resolved that the House of Representatives shall file its record with the Secretary of the Senate, which will consist of those publicly available materials that have been submitted to or produced by the House Judiciary Committee, including transcripts of public hearings or markups and any materials printed by the House of Representatives or the House Judiciary Committee pursuant to House Resolution 660. Materials in this record will be admitted into evidence subject to any hearsay, evidentiary, or other objections that the President may make after opening presentations are concluded. All materials filed pursuant to this paragraph shall be printed and made available to all parties. The President and the House of Representatives shall have until 9 a.m. on Wednesday, January 22, 2020, to file any motions permitted under the rules of impeachment with the exception of motions to subpoena witnesses or documents or any other evidentiary motions. Responses to any such motions shall be filed no later than 11 a.m. on Wednesday, January 22, 2020. All materials filed pursuant to this paragraph shall be filed with the Secretary and be printed and made available to all parties. Arguments on such motions shall begin at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, January 22, 2020, and each side may determine the number of persons to make its presentation, following which the Senate shall deliberate, if so ordered, under the impeachment rules and vote on any such motions. Following the disposition of such motions, or if no motions are made, then the House of Representatives shall make its presentation in support of the articles of impeachment for a period of time not to exceed 24 hours over up to three session days. Following the House of Representatives' presentation, the President shall make his presentation for a period not to exceed 24 hours over up to three session days. Each side may determine the number of persons to make its presentation. Upon the conclusion of the President's presentation, Senators may question the parties for a period of time not to exceed 16 hours. Upon the conclusion of questioning by the Senate, there shall be four hours of argument by the parties, equally divided, followed by deliberation by the Senate, if so ordered under the impeachment rules, on the question of whether it shall be in order to consider and debate under the impeachment rules any motion to subpoena witnesses or documents. The Senate, without any intervening action, motion, or amendment, shall then decide by the yeas and nays whether it shall be in order to consider and debate under the impeachment rules any motion to subpoena witnesses or documents. Following the disposition of that question, other motions provided under the impeachment rules shall be in order. If the Senate agrees to allow either the House of Representatives or the President to subpoena witnesses, the witnesses shall first be deposed and the Senate shall decide after deposition which witnesses shall testify pursuant to the impeachment rules. No testimony shall be admissible in the Senate unless the parties have had an opportunity to depose such witnesses. At the conclusion of deliberations by the Senate, the Senate shall vote on each article of impeachment. The resolution is arguable by the parties for two hours equally divided. Mr. Manager Schiff, are you a proponent or opponent of this motion? Justice, the 
managers are in opposition to this resolution. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Cipollone, are you a proponent or opponent of the motion? Mr. Chief Justice, we are a proponent of the motion. Then, Mr. Cipollone, your side may proceed first, and we'll be able to reserve rebuttal time if you wish. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Majority Leader McConnell, Democratic Leader Schumer, Senators. My name is Pat Cipollone. I am here as counsel to the President of the United States. Our team is proud to be here representing President Trump. We support this resolution. It is a fair way to proceed with this trial. It is modeled on the Clinton resolution, which had 100 senators supporting it the last time this body considered an impeachment. It requires the House managers to stand up and make their opening statement and make their case. They have delayed bringing this impeachment to this House for 33 days, 33 days to this body. And it's time to start with this trial. It's a fair process. They will have the opportunity to stand up and make their opening statement. They will get 24 hours to do that. Then the president's attorneys will have a chance to respond. After that, all of you will have 16 hours to ask whatever questions you have of either side. Once that's finished and you have all of that information, we will proceed to the question of witnesses and some of the more difficult questions that will come before this body. We are in favor of this. We believe that once you hear those initial presentations, the only conclusion will be that the President has done absolutely nothing wrong and that these articles of impeachment do not begin to approach the standard required by the Constitution, and in fact, they themselves will establish nothing beyond those articles. You look at those articles alone and you will determine that there is absolutely no case. So we respectfully ask you to adopt this resolution so that we can begin with this process. It is long past time to start this proceeding and we are here today to do it. And we hope that the House managers will agree with us and begin this proceeding today. We reserve the remainder of our time for rebuttal. Mr. Chief Justice, Senators, and Counsel for the President, the House managers on behalf of the House of Representatives rise in opposition to Leader McConnell's resolution. Let me begin by summarizing why. Last week, we came before you to present the articles of impeachment against the President of the United States for only the third time in our history. Those articles charged President Donald John Trump with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The misconduct set out in those articles is the most serious ever charged against a president. The first article, abuse of power, charges the president with soliciting a foreign power to help him cheat in the next election. Moreover, it alleges, and we will prove, that he sought to coerce Ukraine into helping him cheat by withholding official acts, two official acts, 
a meeting that the new president of Ukraine desperately sought with President Trump at the White House to show the world and the Russians in particular that the Ukrainian president had a good relationship with his most important patron, the president of the United States. And even more perniciously, President Trump illegally withheld almost $400 million in taxpayer-funded military assistance to Ukraine, a nation at war with our Russian adversary, to compel Ukraine to help him cheat in the election. Astonishingly, the president's trial brief filed yesterday contends that even if this conduct is proved, that there is nothing that the House or this Senate may do about it. It is the president's apparent belief that under Article 2, he can do anything he wants, no matter how corrupt, outfitted in gaudy legal clothing. And yet, when the founders wrote the impeachment clause, they had precisely this type of misconduct in mind. Conduct that abuses the power of his office for personal benefit, that undermines our national security, that invites foreign interference in our democratic process of an election. It is the trifecta of constitutional misconduct justifying impeachment. In Article 2, the president is charged with other misconduct that would likewise have alarmed the founders. The full, complete, and absolute obstruction of a co-equal branch of government, the Congress, during the course of its impeachment investigation into the president's own misconduct. This is every bit as destructive of our constitutional order as the misconduct charged in the first article. If a president can obstruct his own investigation, if he can effectively nullify a power the Constitution gives solely to Congress, indeed the ultimate power, the ultimate power the Constitution gives to prevent presidential misconduct, then the president places himself beyond accountability, above the law, cannot be indicted, cannot be impeached. It makes him a monarch, the very evil against which our Constitution and the balance of powers it carefully laid out was designed to guard against. Shortly, the trial on these charges will begin, and when it has concluded, you'll be asked to make several determinations. Did the House prove that the president abused his power by seeking to coerce a foreign nation to help him cheat in the next election? And did he obstruct the Congress in its investigation into his own misconduct? by ordering his agencies and officers to cooperate, refuse to cooperate in any way, to refuse to testify, to refuse to answer subpoenas for documents and through every other means. And if the House has proved its case, and we believe the evidence will not be seriously contested, you will have to answer at least one other critical question. Does the commission of these high crimes and misdemeanors require the conviction and removal of the president. We believe that it does, and that the Constitution requires that it be so, or the power of impeachment must be deemed a relic or a casualty to partisan times, and the American people left unprotected against a president who would abuse his power for the very purpose of corrupting the only other method of accountability, our elections themselves. And so you will vote to find the president guilty or not guilty to find his conduct impeachable or not impeachable. But I would submit to you, these are not the most important decisions you will make. How can that be? 
How can any decision you will make be more important than guilt or innocence than removing the president or not removing the president? I believe the most important decision in this case is the one you will make today. The most important question is the question you must answer today. Will the president and the American people get a fair trial? Will there be a fair trial? I submit that this is an even more important question than how you vote on guilt or innocence because whether we have a fair trial will determine whether you have a basis to render a fair and impartial verdict. It is foundational. The structure upon which every other decision you will make must rest. If you only get to see part of the evidence, if you only allow one side or the other a chance to present their full case, your verdict will be predetermined by the bias in the proceeding. If the defendant is not allowed to introduce evidence of his innocence, it's not a fair trial. So too for the prosecution. If the House cannot call witnesses or introduce documents and evidence, it's not a fair trial. It's not really a trial at all. Americans all over the country are watching us right now. And imagine they're on grand jury or they're on jury duty. Imagine that the judge walks into that courtroom and says that she's been talking to the defendant. And at the defendant's request, the judge has agreed not to let the prosecution call any witnesses or introduce any documents. The judge and the defendant have agreed that the prosecutor may only read to the jury the dry transcripts of the grand jury proceedings. That's it. Has anyone on jury duty in this country ever heard a judge describe such a proceeding and call it a fair trial? Of course not. That's not a fair trial. It's a mockery of a trial. Under the Constitution, this proceeding, the one we are in right now, is the trial. This is not the appeal from a trial. You are not appellate court judges. Okay, one of you is. And unless this trial is going to be different from every other impeachment trial or any other kind of trial for that matter, you must allow the prosecution and defense, the House manager and the president's lawyers, to call relevant witnesses. You must subpoena documents that the president has blocked, but which bear on his guilt or innocence. You must impartially do justice as your oath requires. So what does a fair trial look like in the context of impeachment? The short answer is it looks like every other trial. First, the resolution should allow the House managers to obtain documents that have been withheld. First, not last, because the documents will inform the decision about which witnesses are most important to call. And when the witnesses are called, the documentary evidence will be available and must be available to question them with. Any other order makes no sense. Next, the resolution should allow the House managers to call their witnesses. And then the president should be allowed to do the same and any rebuttal witnesses. And when the evidentiary portion of the trial ends, the parties argue the case. You deliberate and render a verdict. If there's a dispute as to whether a particular witness is relevant or material to the charges brought under the Senate rules, the Chief Justice would rule on the issue of materiality. Why should this trial be different than any other trial? The short answer is it shouldn't. But Leader McConnell's resolution would turn the trial process on its head. 
His resolution requires the House to prove its case without witnesses, without documents, and only after it's done will such questions be entertained with no guarantee that any witnesses or any documents will be allowed even then. That process makes no sense. So what is the harm of waiting until the end of the trial, of kicking the can down the road on the question of documents and witnesses? Besides the fact it's completely backwards, trial first, then evidence, besides the fact that the documents would inform the decision on which witnesses and help in their questioning, the harm is this. You will not have any of the evidence the president continues to conceal throughout most or all of the trial. And although the evidence against the president is already overwhelming, you may never know the full scope of the president's misconduct or those around him. And neither will the American people. The charges here involve the sacrifice of our national security at home and abroad and a threat to the integrity of the next election. If there are additional remedial steps that need to be taken after the president's conviction, the American people must know about it. But if, as a public already jaded by experience has come to suspect, this resolution is merely the first step of an effort orchestrated by the White House to rush the trial, hide the evidence, and render a fast verdict or worse, a fast dismissal, to make the presence go away as quickly as possible to cover up his misdeeds, then the American people will be deprived of a fair trial and may never learn just how deep the corruption of this administration goes or what other risks to our security and elections remain hidden. The harm will also endure for this body. If the Senate allows the president to get away with such extensive obstruction, it will affect the Senate's power of subpoena and oversight just as much as the House. The Senate's ability to conduct oversight will be beholden to the desires of this president and future presidents, whether he or she decides they want to cooperate with a Senate investigation or another impeachment inquiry and trial. Our system of checks and balances will be broken Presidents will become accountable to no one. Now, it has been reported that Leader McConnell has already got the votes to pass this resolution. The text of which we did not see until last night and which has been changed even moments ago. And they say that Leader McConnell is a very good vote counter. Nonetheless, I hope that he's wrong. And not just because I think this process, the process contemplated by this resolution is backwards and designed with a result in mind, and that the result is not a fair trial. I hope that he's wrong because whatever senators may have said or pledged or committed has been superseded by an event of constitutional dimension. You have all now sworn an oath, not to each other, not to your legislative leadership, not to the managers or even to the Chief Justice. You have sworn an oath to do impartial justice. That oath binds you. That oath supersedes all else. Many of you in the Senate and many of us in the House have made statements about the President's conduct or this trial or this motion or expectations. None of that matters now. That is all in the past. 
Nothing matters now but the oath to do impartial justice. And that oath requires a fair trial, fair to the president and fair to the American people. But is that really possible? Or as the founders feared, has factionalism or an excessive partisanship made that now impossible? One way to find out what a fair trial should look like, devoid of partisan consideration, is to ask yourselves, how would you structure the trial if you didn't know what your party was? And you didn't know what the party of the president was? Would it make sense to you to have the trial first and then decide on witnesses and evidence later? Would that be fair to both sides? I have to think that your answer would be no. Let me be blunt. Let me be very blunt. Right now, a great many, perhaps even most Americans, do not believe there will be a fair trial. They don't believe that the Senate will be impartial. They believe that the result is pre-cooked. The president will be acquitted. Not because he is innocent. He is not. But because the senators will vote by party and he has the votes. The votes to prevent the evidence from coming out. The votes to make sure the public never sees it. The American people want a fair trial. They want to believe their system of government is still capable of rising to the occasion. They want to believe that we can rise above party and do what's best for the country, but a great many Americans don't believe that will happen. Let's prove them wrong. Let's prove them wrong. How? By convicting the president? No, not by conviction alone. By convicting him if the House proves its case, and only if the House proves its case, but by letting the House prove its case, by letting the House call witnesses, by letting the House obtain documents, by letting the House decide how to present its own case, and not deciding it for us, in sum, by agreeing to a fair trial. Now let's turn to the precise terms of the resolution the history of impeachment trials, and what fairness and impartiality require. Although we have many concerns about the resolution, I will begin with its single biggest flaw. The resolution does not ensure that subpoenas will, in fact, be issued for additional evidence that the Senate and the American people should have, and that the President continues to block to fairly decide the president's guilt or innocence. Moreover, it guarantees that subpoenas will not be issued now, when they would be most valuable to the Senate, the parties, and the American people. According to the resolution the leader has introduced, first, the Senate receives briefs and filings from the parties. Next, it hears lengthy presentations from the House and the president. Now, my colleagues, the president's lawyers, have described this as opening statements. But let's not kid ourselves, that is the trial that they contemplate. The opening statements are the trial. They'll either be most of the trial or they'll be all the trial. If the Senate votes to deprive itself of witnesses and documents, the opening statements will be the end of the trial. 
So to say, let's just have the opening statements and then we'll see means let's have the trial. And maybe we can just sweep this all under the rug. So you'll hear these lengthy presentations from the House. There will be a question and answer period for the senators. And then and only then, after essentially the trial is over, after the briefs have been filed, after the arguments have been made, after the senators exhaust all their questions, only then will the Senate consider whether to subpoena crucial documents and witness testimony that the president has desperately tried to conceal from this Congress and the American people. Documents and witness testimony that, unlike the Clinton trial, have not yet been seen or heard. It is true that the record compiled by the House is overwhelming. It is true the record already compels the conviction of the president in the face of unprecedented resistance by the president. The House assembled a powerful case, evidence of the president's high crimes and misdemeanors that includes direct evidence and testimony of officials who were unwilling and unwitting uh, in this scheme and saw it for what it was. Yet there is still more evidence, relative and probative evidence, that the, continue, the president continues to block, that would flesh out the full extent of the president's misconduct and those around him. We have seen that over the past few weeks, new evidence has continued to come to light, as the nonpartisan government's accountability office has determined that the hold on military to Ukraine was illegal and broke the law. As John Bolton has offered to testify in the trial, as one of the president's agents, Lev Parnas, has produced documentary evidence that clarifies Mr. Giuliani's activities on behalf of the president and corroborates Ambassador Sondland's testimony that everyone was in the loop. As documents released under the Freedom of Information Act have documented the alarm at the Department of Defense while the president illegally withheld military support for Ukraine and at war with Russia without as a senior office of budget official Michael Duffy instructed Defense Department officials on July 25th 90 minutes after President Trump spoke by by phone with President Zelensky, the Defense Department should pause all obligations of Ukraine military assistance under its purview, 90 minutes after that call. Duffy added, quote, given the sensitive nature of the request, I appreciate your keeping that information closely held to those who need to know to execute the direction. Although the evidence is already more than sufficient to convict, there is simply no rational basis for the Senate to deprive itself of all relevant information in making such a hugely consequential judgment. Moreover, as the President's answer to his summons and his trial brief make clear, the President now attempts to contest the facts, albeit in false and misleading ways. But the President should not have it both ways. He should not be permitted to claim that the facts uncovered by the House are wrong while also concealing mountains of evidence that bear precisely on those facts. If this body seeks impartial justice, it should ensure that subpoenas are issued and that they are issued now, before the Senate begins extended proceedings based on a record that every person in this room and every American watching at home knows does not include documents and witness testimony. It should because the President would not allow it to be so. Complying with these subpoenas would not impose a burden. The subpoenas 
cover narrowly tailored and targeted documents and witnesses that the president has concealed. The Senate deserves to see the documents from the White House, the State Department, the Office of Management and Budget, the Department of Defense. These agencies already should have collected and at least preserved these documents in response to House subpoenas. Indeed, in some cases, agencies have already produced documents in FOIA lawsuits, albeit in heavily redacted form. And witnesses with direct knowledge or involvement should be heard. That includes the President's acting Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, his former National Security Advisor, John Bolton, who has publicly offered to testify, two senior officials implementing, integral to implementing the President's freeze on Ukraine's military aid also have very relevant testimony. Why not hear it? Robert Blair, who serves as Mulvaney's senior advisor, Michael Duffy, a senior official at OMB, and other witnesses with direct knowledge that we reserve the right to call later, but these witnesses with whom we wish to begin the trial. Last month, President Trump made clear that he supported having senior officials testify before the Senate during his trial, declaring that he would love to have Secretary Pompeo, Mr. Mulvaney, now former Secretary Perry, and quote, many other people testify in the Senate trial. I would love to have Mike Pompeo, I'd love to have Mitch, I'd love to have uh, Rick Perry, uh, and many other people testify. The Senate has an opportunity to take the President up on his offer to make his senior aides available, including Mr. Mulvaney and Secretaries Perry and Pompeo. But now the President is changing his tune. The bluster of wanting these witnesses to testify is over. Notwithstanding the fact that he has never asserted a claim of privilege during the course of the House impeachment proceedings, he threatens to invoke one now in a last-ditch effort to keep the rest of the truth from coming out. The President sends his lawyers here to breathlessly claim that these witnesses or others cannot possibly testify because it involves national security. Never mind that it was the President's actions in withholding military aid from an ally at war that threatened our national security in the first place. Never mind that the most impeachable, serious offenses will always involve national security because they will involve other nations and that misconduct based on foreign entanglement was what the framers feared most. The President's absurdist argument amounts to this. We must endanger national security to protect national security. We must make a president's conduct threatening our security beyond the reach of impeachment power if we are to save the presidency. This is dangerous nonsense. As justices of the Supreme Court have underscored, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. But let us turn from the abstract to the very concrete and let me show you just one example of what the president is hiding in the name of national security. There is a document which the president has refused to turn over in which his top diplomat in Ukraine says to two other appointees of the president, as I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. The administration refuses to turn over that document and so many more we only know about its existence. We have only seen its contents because it was turned over by a cooperating witness. This is what the president would hide from you and from the American people. 
In the name of national security, he would hide graphic evidence of his dangerous misconduct. The only question is, and it is the question raised by this resolution, will you let him? Last year, President Trump said that Article 2 of the Constitution will allow him to do anything he wanted. And evidently believing that Article 2 empowered him to denigrate and defy a co-equal branch of government, he also declared that he will fight all subpoenas. Let's, let's hear the President's own words. Then I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as President. Well, we're fighting all the subpoenas. True to his pledge to obstruct Congress, when President Trump faced an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives, he ordered the executive branch to defy every single request on every single subpoena. He issued this order through his White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, on October 8, the same counsel that stood before you a moment ago to defend the president's misconduct. He then affirmed it again at a rally on October 10. Following President Trump's categorical order, we never received key documents and communications. It is important to note in refusing to respond to Congress, the President did not make any, any formal claim of privilege ever. Instead, Mr. Cipollone's letter stated, in effect, that the President would withhold all evidence in the executive branch unless the House surrendered to demands that would effectively place President Trump in charge of the inquiry into his own misconduct. Needless to say, that was a non-starter and designed to be so. The President was determined to obstruct Congress no matter what we did. And his conduct since, his attacks on the impeachment inquiry, his attacks on witnesses, have affirmed that the President never had any intention to cooperate under any circumstance. And why? Because the evidence and testimony he conceals would only further prove his guilt. The innocent do not act this way. Simply stated, this trial should not reward the president's obstruction by allowing him to control what evidence is seen and when it is seen and what evidence will remain hidden. The documents the president seeks to conceal include White House records, including records about the president's unlawful hold on military aid. State Department records, including text messages and WhatsApp messages exchanged by the State Department and Ukrainian officials and notes to file written by career professionals as they saw the President's scheme unfold in real time. OMB records demonstrating efforts to fabricate an after-the-fact rationale for the President's orders and showing internal objections that the President's orders violated the law. Defense Department records reflecting bafflement and alarm that the President suspended military aid to a key security partner without explanation. Many of the President's aides have also followed his orders and refused to testify. These include central figures in the impeachment inquiry, including White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, and many others with relevant testimony, like Robert Blair and Michael Duffy. Mr. Blair who serves as a senior advisor to Acting Chief of Staff Mulvaney, worked directly with Mr. Duffy, a political appointee in the Office of Management and Budget, to carry out the President's order to freeze vital military and security assistance to Ukraine. The Trump administration has refused to disclose their communications, even though we know 
from written testimony, public reporting, and even Freedom of Information Act lawsuits that they were instrumental in implementing the hold and extending it at the President's express direction. Even, even as career officials warned accurately that doing so would violate the law. The President has also made the insupportable claim that the House should have enforced its subpoenas in court and allowed the President to delay his impeachment for years. If we had done so, we would have abdicated our constitutional duty to act on the overwhelming facts before us and the evidence the President was seeking to cheat in the next election. We could not engage in a deliberately protracted court process while the President continued to threaten the sanctity of our elections. Resorting to the courts is also inconsistent with a constitution that gives the House the sole power of impeachment. If the House were compelled to exhaust all legal remedies before impeaching the President, it would interpose the courts or the decision of a single judge between the House and the power to impeach. Moreover, it would invite the President to prevent his own impeachment by endlessly litigating the matter in court, appealing every judgment, engaging in every frivolous motion or device. Indeed, in the case of Don McGahn, the President's lawyer who was ordered to fire the special counsel and lie about it, he was subpoenaed by the House in April last year, and there is still no final judgment. A President may not defeat impeachment or accountability by engaging in endless litigation. Instead, it's been the long practice of the House to compile core evidence necessary to reach a reasoned decision about whether to impeach and then to bring the case here to the Senate for a full trial. That is exactly what we did here with an understanding that the Senate has its own power to compel documents and testimony. It would be one thing if the House had shown no interest in documents or witnesses during its investigation, although even there, the House has the sole right to determine its proceedings, as long as it makes the full case to the House, as it did. But it is quite another when the President is the cause of his own complaint, when the President withholds witnesses and documents and then attempts to rely on his own noncompliance to justify further concealment. President Trump made it crystal clear we would never see a single document or a single witness when he declared, as we just watched, that he would fight all subpoenas. As a matter of history and precedent, it would be wrong to assert that the Senate is unable to obtain and review new evidence during a Senate trial, regardless of why evidence was not produced in the House. You can and should insist on receiving all of the evidence so you can render impartial justice and can earn the confidence of the public in the Senate's willingness to hold a fair trial. Under the Constitution, the Senate does not just vote on impeachments. It does not just debate them. Instead, it is commanded by the Constitution to try all cases of impeachment. If the Founders intended for the House to try the matter and the Senate to consider an appeal based on the cold record from the other chamber, they would have said so. But they did not. Instead, they gave us the power to charge and you the power to try all impeachments. The framers chose their language and the structure for a reason. As Alexander Hamilton said, the Senate is given awful discretion in matters of impeachment. The Constitution thus speaks to senators in their judicial character as a court for the trial 
of impeachments. It requires them to aim at, aim at real demonstrations of innocence or guilt, and it requires them to do so by holding a trial. The Senate has repeatedly subpoenaed and received new documents, often many of them while adjudicating cases of impeachment. Moreover, the Senate has heard witness testimony in every one of the 15 Senate trials, full Senate trials in the history of this republic, including those for Presidents Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. Indeed, in President Andrew Johnson's Senate impeachment trial, the House managers were permitted to begin presenting documentary evidence to the Senate on the very first day of the trial. The House manager's initial presentation of documents in President Johnson's case carried on for the first two days of trial, immediately after which witnesses were called to appear in the Senate. This has been the standard practice in prior impeachment trials. Indeed, in most trials, this body has heard from many witnesses, ranging from three in President Clinton's case to 40 in President Johnson's and well over 60 in other impeachments. As these numbers make clear, the Senate has always heard from key witnesses when trying an impeachment. The notion that only evidence that was taken before the House should be considered is squarely and unequivocally contrary to Senate precedent. Nothing in law or history supports it. To start, consider Leader McConnell's own description of his work in a prior Senate impeachment proceeding. After serving on the Senate trial committee in the case of Judge Claiborne, Leader McConnell described how the Senate committee, quote, labored intensively for more than two months, amassing the necessary evidence and testimony. In the same essay, Leader McConnell recognized the full body's responsibility for amassing and digesting evidence. There was certainly a lot of evidence for the Senate to amass and digest in that proceeding, which involved charges against a district court judge. The Senate heard testimony from 19 witnesses, and it allowed for over 2,000 pages of documents to be entered into the record over the course of that trial. At no point did the Senate limit evidence to what was before the House. It did the opposite, consistent with unbroken Senate practice in every single impeachment trial, every single one. For example, of the 40 witnesses who testified during President Johnson's Senate trial, only three provided testimony to the House during its impeachment inquiry, only three. The remaining 37 witnesses in that presidential impeachment trial testified before the Senate. Similarly, similarly, the Senate's full first impeachment trial, which involved charges against Judge Pickering, involved testimony from 11 witnesses, all of whom were new to the impeachment proceedings and not had, had not testified before the House. There are many other examples of this point, including the Senate's most recent impeachment trial of Judge Porteous in 2010. It is one that many of you and some of us know well. It too is consistent with this long-standing practice. There the Senate heard testimony from 26 witnesses, 17 of whom had not testified before the House during its impeachment inquiry. Thus, there is a definitive tradition of the Senate hearing from new witnesses when trying articles of impeachment. There has never been a rule limiting witnesses to those who appeared in the House or limiting evidence before the Senate to that which the House itself considered. And that is because, as Senator Hiram Johnson explained in 1934, 
The integrity of Senate impeachment trials depend heavily upon the witnesses who are called, their appearance on the stand, their mode of giving testimony. There is thus an unbroken history of witness testimony in Senate impeachment trials. Presidential and judicial, I would argue in the case of a president, it is even more important to hear the witnesses and see the documents. Any conceivable doubt on this score, and there should be none left, is dispelled by the Senate's own rules for trial of impeachment. Obtaining documents and hearing live witness testimony is so fundamental that the rules of procedure and practice in the Senate when sitting on impeachment trials, which date back to the 19th century, devote more attention to the gathering, handling, and admission of new evidence than any other single subject. These rules expressly contemplate that the Senate will hear evidence and conduct a thorough trial when sitting as a court of impeachment. At every turn, they reject the notion that the Senate would take the House's evidentiary record, blind itself to everything else, and vote to convict or acquit. For example, Rule 6 says the Senate shall have the power to compel the attendance of witnesses and enforce obedience to its orders. Rule 7 authorizes the presiding officer to rule on all questions of evidence, including but not limited to questions of relevancy, materiality, and redundancy. This rule, too, presumes that the Senate trial will have testimony giving rise to such questions. Rule 11 authorizes the full Senate to designate a committee of senators to receive evidence and take testimony at such times and places as the committee may determine. As Rule 11 makes clear, the committee's report must be transmitted to the full Senate for final adjudication. But nothing herein, the rule states, shall prevent the Senate from sending for any witness and hearing his testimony in open Senate or by order of the Senate involving the entire trial in the open Senate. Here, too, the Senate's operative impeachment rules expressly contemplate and provide for subpoenaing witnesses and hearing their testimony as part of the Senate trial. And the list goes on. These rules plainly contemplate a robust role for the Senate in gathering and considering evidence. They reflect centuries of practice of accepting and requiring new evidence in Senate trials. This Senate should honor that practice today by rejecting this resolution. What about the Clinton trial? What about the Clinton trial, it will be argued? Even if we are departing from every other impeachment trial in history, including the present impeachment of President Andrew Johnson, what about the Clinton trial? Aren't we following the same processes in the Clinton trial? The answer is no. First, the process for the Clinton trial was worked out by mutual consent among the parties. That is not true here, where the process is sought to be imposed by one party on the other. Second, all of the documents in the Clinton trial were turned over prior to the trial. All 90,000 pages of them, so they could be used in the House's case. None of the documents have been turned over by the president in this case. And under Leader McConnell's proposal, none may ever be. They certainly won't be available to you or to us during most or all of the trial. If we are really going to follow the Clinton precedent, the Senate must insist on the documents now, before the trial begins. Third, the issue in the Clinton trial was not one of calling witnesses, but of recalling witnesses, 
all of the key witnesses in the Clinton trial had testified before the grand jury or been interviewed by the FBI, one of them dozens of times, and their testimony was already known. President Clinton himself testified on camera and under oath before the Senate trial. He allowed multiple chiefs of staff and other key officials to testify again before the Senate trial took place. Here, none of the witnesses we seek to call, none of them have testified or been interviewed by the House. And as I said, the President cannot complain that we did not call these witnesses before the House when their unavailability was caused by the President himself. And last, as you will remember, those of you that were here, the testimony in the Clinton trial involved decorum issues that are not present here. You may rest assured, whatever else the case may be, such issues will not be present here. In sum, the Clinton precedent, if you're serious about it, if we're really serious about modeling this proceeding after the Clinton trial, the Clinton precedent is one where all the documents had been provided up front, where all the witnesses had testified up front prior to the trial. That is not being replicated by the McConnell resolution not in any way, not in any shape, not in any form. Far. The traditional model followed in President Johnson's case and all of the others is really the one that's most appropriate to the circumstances. The Senate should address all the documentary issues and most of the witnesses now, not later. The need to subpoena documents and testimony now has only increased due to the President's obstruction for several reasons. First. His obstruction has made him uniquely and personally responsible for the absences of the witnesses before the House. Having ordered them not to appear, he may not be heard to complain now that they followed his orders and refused to testify. To do otherwise only rewards the president's obstruction and encourages further future presidents to defy lawful process in impeachment investigations. Second, if the president wishes to contest the facts and his answer and trial brief indicates that he will try, he must not continue to deny the Senate access to the relevant witnesses and documents that shed light on the very factual matters he wishes to challenge. The Senate trial is not analogous to an appeal where the parties must argue the facts on the basis of the record below. There is no record below. There is no below. This is the trial. Third, the President must not be allowed to mislead the Senate by selectively introducing documents while withholding the vast body of documents that may contradict them. This is very important. The President must not be allowed to mislead you by introducing documents selectively and withholding all of the rest. All of the relevant documents should be produced so there is full disclosure of the truth. Otherwise, there is a clear risk that the president will continue to hide all evidence harmful to his position while selectively producing documents without any context or opportunity to examine their creators. And finally, you may infer the president's guilt from his continuing efforts to obstruct production of documents and witnesses. The president has said he wants witnesses like Mulvaney and Pompeo and others to testify and that his interactions with Ukraine have worked. 
Council has affirmed today that will be the President's defense. His conduct was perfect. It's perfect. Perfectly fine to coerce an ally by withholding military aid to get help cheating in the next election. That will be part of the President's defense, although albeit not worded in that way. But now he has changed course and does not want these witnesses to testify. The logical inference in any court of law would be that the party's continued obstruction of lawful subpoenas may be construed as evidence of guilt. Let me conclude. The facts will come out in the end. The documents which the president is hiding will be released through the Freedom of Information Act or through other means over time. Witnesses will tell their stories in books and film. The truth will come out. The question is, will it come out in time? And what answer shall we give if we did not pursue the truth now and let it remain hidden until it was too late to consider on the profound issue of the president's guilt or innocence? There are many overlapping reasons for voting against this resolution, but they all converge on a single idea. Fairness. The trial should be fair to the House, which has been wrongly deprived of evidence by a president who wishes to conceal it. It should be fair to the president, who will not benefit from an acquittal or dismissal if the trial is not viewed as fair, if it is not viewed as impartial. And fair to you senators, who are tasked with the grave responsibility of determining whether to convict or acquit and should do so with the benefit of all of the facts. And fair to the American people who deserve the full truth and who deserve representatives who will seek it on their behalf. And with that, Mr. Chief Justice, I yield back. Oh, like I said, during the live show, we're only playing that, right? And on the podcast, where it's going to be up later, I play the whole shift portion. Listening to it will irritate you. It irritated me. I was extremely irritated uh, listening, him, uh, listening to him speak and say the things he did. But what one has to wonder is, what is it, what is it exactly that they're doing? Because I'm going to play a clip from December 22nd, Maria Baratomo, where she had, you know, people together uh, on uh, specifically um, Jeff Van Drew, who left the Democratic Party and what he had to say, because what you need to focus on. And I said this before is who is really in charge? Who, who are they, you know, falling in line behind? Who's in charge here? Who really controls the Democrats? Who are the Democrats is the question. And it's not just the Democrats you see uh, every day think who are they? Who are those that are really in charge? Because it's think of just how massive this thought is. If the whole Democratic Party can be controlled by someone or a small group of persons, you have to think how dangerous is this, especially if the control is not 
coming from people of the United States of America because we heard them testify again and again and again and again how 17 intelligence agencies, and I broke it down for you, and Millie Weaver did a great job breaking it down, how there are really only three in the U.S., and then out of the three, only one is really considered an intelligence agency that can provide a report. Remember, the NSA only collects data and the FBI are simply law enforcement. They're the ones that put the cuffs on and take you in and press charges and take you to court. The FBI is not an intelligence agency. I repeat, it is not. And the NSA is simply data collection. They do not report. They do not analyze, um, unless they're analyzing data for the purpose of collection and, uh, you know, cataloging. So this is a really big deal. Think, if our country, the United States of America, has external controls over our politicians, what does that tell you? And, you know, everyone will be like, yep, George Soros. George Soros is the public face. It is the public face are of who they are. So now listen to the control, listen to the demands and listen to what he says. You must, you know, one thing we don't do um, because of a lack of ability to uh, keep um, attention. Our attention span is that of a fish uh, due to the stimulation from various technologies, right? But you have to listen to what Rep. Van Drew says. And so I'm going to play this uh, interview, which is really important. Take a listen to this. New Jersey's Jeff Van Drew officially saying goodbye to the Democrats amid disagreements over impeachment policy and the direction of the party. Congressman Jeff Van Drew joins me right now in an exclusive interview. Congressman, it is a pleasure to see you. Thanks very much for joining me this morning. It is a pleasure to be with you. And as I was saying before, uh, I am so proud to be associated with you. You truly represent what news media should be about and just how to conduct a show like this. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very proud of you and the work that you do and uh, the objectivity that you have. So really thank you. And you that. were the first one to give me a shot, too. Congressman, that means the world to me in, in, this, uh, in this environment of media today. I so, I'm grateful and I so appreciate your comments. Let me ask you, we, we spoke on the phone the other day and, and you said, you know, Marie, I always look for signs. There was a sign, something in you that said, I'm not comfortable here. Tell me how you came to this decision to leave the majority, the Democrats, and become a Republican congressman. Well, the final point and the final sign. So there has been all along, you know, where the party is moving further and further to the left, where there's discussions of it being a socialist party. And I am a proud capitalist. I believe in hard work. I believe that we can give people opportunity, uh, but that they also, when they get that opportunity, have to work hard to achieve success. You can't give them success. And many other things that I'm sure we'll talk as we go along here. But the final sign for me <clears throat> was, oddly enough, um, actually in my home county, when one of the county chairmen, and I have eight counties, one of the county chairmen came to me and said, I have to speak with you. And I said, sure, and sat down. And he said, I just want to let you know that you have to vote for impeachment. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you've got to vote for impeachment. If you don't, you're not going to be able to run in my county. Well, first of all, it's not his county, it's our county. And you're not going to be able to move forward. You're not going to get the line, which is a big deal in New Jersey. And, and you're not going to be successful. 
And I, first of all, I still could have run and I could, still could have gotten the line and I could have fought it out. I fought a lot of things in my life and I fought hard to be where I am. But it made me think for all the years that I've worked so hard and tried to give so much, uh, not only to the party, but to everybody, um, the things that we've done, and I won't go into them, but many, many infrastructure projects and helping people and all the services that we try to give people in our offices. And it all boils down to one vote that I may have my own individual opinion on one vote, and that's not going to be allowed. I'm going to be punished for that. And that's when I knew. I had been thinking about it for a while, and I said, and you know, I was speaking to my chief of staff about this, and, and I said to her, I said, you know, there's always been in my career and over time something that happens that lets you know that it is time to make a change. And this was it. You know, that's really it told interesting. Me it was time to make a change. So you were uncomfortable with the shaming and, you know, the, the pushback that you couldn't do what you, you thought was right, that you had to go along with the herd. Look, we talked about this before that, you know, Congress is going to have to go back to its district. And we've got a map here of the 31 districts of what the districts that President Trump won. But these people will have to get reelected. And they also have to follow their conscience. And yet... This impeachment vote last week, you were among the few. You and Colin Peterson, Peterson uh, were the only two that voted no on both articles, and then one other voted no on just one article. So post-impeachment vote, what are you feeling today? What struck you about the impeachment? You were a no going into it. You told us that a month ago. Exactly. And uh, how I feel today is I feel good. I feel that I did the honorable thing. I feel that I did what was right for me and right for the country. And I heard Lindsay a little while before, this impeachment is a weak, thin impeachment that just doesn't really mean anything much to most of the Amer American people. And it has been a long, dark shadow on our country. And folks are tired. I really believe folks are tired of it. They're tired of the hours and hours and hours of time that has been spent on it. They're tired of the millions of dollars that have been spent on it. And they want to move forward. Maria, we have so many important issues. And yes, we've done a few. No doubt, we're doing a few, but there are so many more, whether it's election security, whether it's better care for our veterans, uh, whether it's a host of other issues, and I could go through one after another, Medicare, Medicaid, we can talk about all of them that we should be concentrating 100% of our time on. We are there to work for the American people and not to have constant political bickering yeah. and to come up with a weak impeachment. And, you know, most importantly, we must understand what impeachment is. It almost never happens for a reason. Other than declaring war, it is the most serious issue that America, and action that America could ever, ever take. And it harms our country. It fractions us apart. It makes us more, literally, creates more civil unrest. It creates more yeah. unhurt. I want to bring people together. Let's bring Americans together. Congressman, I, you know, uh, throughout this week, after you made the switch, a lot of people were saying, well, look, he left the Democrats. Now he's a Republican. How can we trust him as a Republican? So we have your voting record here, and you, you have followed your principles in your voting record. I mean, we've got that you voted to override President Trump's veto of a bill that overturned his emergency declaration for border wall funding. You voted to block President Trump from withdrawing from the Paris Climate Change Accord. When you look at your voting record and you hear some of the skeptics who say, look, Jeff Andrew just left his own party. Now he's with us. We don't know if we can trust him. What do you want to say about that in terms of how you are going to push for the Republican Party now? 
I'm gonna, I always pushed for what I believed was right and what I believed was best. And so, for example, we talked about the environment a little bit. I believe that um, we can have a good environment and that we can do what's right for the environment at the, at the same time not hurt our business atmosphere in the state and in the country. And I think that's very, very important. And I think the biggest reason I can say that people know that, I've had many, many Republicans vote for me for years and many Democrats. I try to do, again, what is the best. So um, I've won in areas, and as we've talked about before, where I was, you know, um, one of the, literally, I think only the first or the second state senator in history to ever win in my state, in my district. Um, I was only one of a handful of freeholders that ever won since the Civil War, which are county commissioners. Make a long story short, people voted me not only because of my political party, right. but most importantly because they knew my word was my bond. They knew that I love this country more well, than anything well, in the, the other world thing is I heard that you, we can I, do better. I heard you quote Reagan the other day, and you said, look, I didn't leave, and he said, I didn't leave the Dem Party, the Democratic Party left me. And I love what you said the other day when I spoke with you. You said, look, I want America to know that we're exceptional. I believe in America exceptionalism. So and you're a capitalist. Tell me what went wrong in terms of the Democratic Party that it doesn't see it feel like they see it the way you do real quick. sir. Well, and, and that's where you hit it on the head. So I speak about American exceptionalism a lot for those that are not real familiar with it. In America is a truly unique nation that it is the greatest nation in the world, that we have so much potential and we are the leaders of the free world right. and that we are leaders in general. And I had Democrats come to me and say, that's wrong. We're the same as any other country in the world. Okay, now what he was saying is, is that he was being bullied, right? So this is exceptional if you think about it, that they would actually bully someone to do their bidding that is incredible you have to you have to give that you know the merit it deserves that is indeed incredible see you in a bit All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So where we're at is we're full swing impeachment. We've got a lot of pedophogging, right? I like that word. That's like bickering, like, the you know, gossip girls. But in essence, it's really that this is this is just, you know, I need you guys to understand that this is indeed war. To the people, the good and the evil, this is war. Yeah, I got a guy running uh, for the whip. To the soldier, the civilian, the martyr, the victim, this is war.
this is what we're going through right now. It is war. And what people don't seem to understand is that every single thing they have done from the moment he came down that escalator was to prevent them from being revealed. Revealing who is they, who they serve because they are not serving the people of the United States of America. Okay, they are not. They are not serving us constantly. Roadblocks, lies, new narratives again and again and again. And what you don't seem to understand is remember 17 intelligence agencies, not true. So who was it? Because if there were 17 intelligence agencies, we would be having footnotes from all of them, all of them. So What is really going on? What's really going on is that we are replacing. We are removing the swamp is not the Pelosi and the Schiff. Those are clowns. Those are public facing sacrificial lambs for them. We are replacing the people in our intelligence community daily. And as they go through this sham of an impeachment, that will fail. They'll draw new ones because the only way that they can remove him, the only way that they can get us to kneel and yield to their power is by showing us that we don't have any. And this is what they are successfully doing when they see people say, nothing's happening. They're not in jail. Wait, be patient. Because what's the point of putting Clinton in for all her suicided all the children that they've, what they've done is horrific. What they are doing is horrific. But what's the point of putting them away if the real people that allow it to make it happen are still sitting in the shadows with their clearances in their cubicles, ensuring that more of them can continue so? That's what you have to think of. They make a move. Uh, Then there's another move from us called the counter move. That's how we move. That is how we get to where we need to go. This is the moment that truth comes out and faces the lies. This is the moment that uh, the swamp lives or dies. This is where we're at right now. And we do not see it. Our president has gone to Switzerland while they're trying to impeach him. And this is where colors are showing too. That's what's incredible. Their colors are showing. Everything is showing. So much so that yesterday I saw a clip where Jim Acosta was accosting, right? Uh, Ivanka Trump, who so gracefully and so eloquently ignored him when he was asking questions. I want you to take a listen to President Trump, his press conference that he held in Davos, Switzerland, and what he had to say. Okay. It's important that we listen to what our president is telling us because where he is now is the lion's den. Switzerland is considered, you know, the neutral ground, you know, with their army, with their Swiss army knives. That's literally what they carry with their, you know, freaky outfits and great chocolates. It is the center of all. Take a listen. Uh, please come on up, Roberto and Larry, Robert, Steve, come on up. And good afternoon. We've had a tremendous uh, two days here. We'll be heading back right after this conference, and and I've just concluded uh, some additional meetings. We've had a lot of them, 
in Davos has treated us really beautifully. It's been a tremendous success. Everyone's talking about America's unprecedented economic success. It's really the talk of the town, so to speak. Uh, since my election, America has gained over 7 million new jobs. The unemployment rate is now the lowest in over half a century. The average unemployment rate for my administration is the lowest of any U.S. president in recorded history, which is very nice. We have some good ones. We have some bad ones, too, by the way. Unemployment rates among African-American, Hispanic-American, Asian-Americans has reached a record low in the history of our country, the lowest. African-American youth unemployment has reached the lowest in the history of our country. So proud of that. African-American poverty numbers have plummeted to their lowest rate ever recorded, doing really well. Unemployment rate for women has reached the lowest level in almost 70 years. And the veterans' unemployment rate dropped to a record low. Unemployment rate for disabled Americans has reached its all-time record low also. These are incredible numbers, Rob. Workers without a high school diploma have received the and achieved the lowest unemployment rate ever in recorded history. And that's so important. Without a high school diploma, we have a lot of great people that don't have a high school diploma, so we have record low unemployment. A record number of young Americans are now employed. We have the highest number of people working in our country that we've ever had before. We've never had anything even close. We're almost up to 160 million. And we've lifted 10 million people off of welfare. And you know all about food stamps. We talk about it all the time. But millions and millions of people don't need food stamps anymore. It's not that we've lifted them off, which we have, but they don't need them anymore. They have jobs. They're, they're doing really well. The U.S. stock markets have soared, and they've reached the uh, highest point that they've ever, ever had. We've made at least $19 trillion in terms of wealth, in terms of wealth creation for our country, beyond the stock markets. And uh, we are now by far the biggest economy in the world. Uh, China would have caught us. Uh, they were getting very close. It was anticipated that in 2019, this is for many years, I'm not telling any secrets, that by 2019, China would become the largest economy in the world, and right now we're much larger. But we have a great new deal with China, great deal. We have, I would say, our best relationship that we've ever had with China on top of everything else. And we're starting phase two. Phase one turned out to be much bigger than we anticipated because we have intellectual property protections we have uh, many of the financial deals and aspects of the financial deals that we wanted, we got done, and other things. In addition to the farmers, we've got the total complete package for the farmers. And we think that'll, we, we estimate that'll be anywhere between 40 and $50 billion. Uh, the uh, number, I think, is going to be closer to $50 billion. The most they've ever done is 16 So we go from 16 to anywhere from 40 to $50 billion that they'll be purchasing. We're an economic powerhouse like actually we've never been. Jobs, factories, companies are pouring back into the United States. That's one of the reasons I've been in Davos is we have had conversations with other leaders of other countries where we've traditionally had tremendous deficits. I see you have to 
move factories and plants back here. They took a lot of them. They actually took a lot of them, and now they're going to move them back. They're not going to move them back. The companies are coming back because everybody wants to be here. But the countries also understand that we have to balance out our trade, and we're doing incredibly well in that way. And one of the people that was very important for me to meet from the World Trade Organization is Roberto Azevedo, and he is a uh, highly respected man. He happens to be this gentleman right here. I thought I'd have him say a few words, but the World Trade Organization, as you know, I've had a uh, dispute running with them for quite a while because uh, our country hasn't been treated fairly. China's uh, viewed as a developing nation. India is viewed as a developing nation. We're not viewed as a developing nation. As far as I'm concerned, we're a developing nation, too. But they got tremendous uh, advantages by the fact that they were considered developing and we weren't. And they shouldn't be. But if they are, we are. And uh, we're talking about a whole new structure for the deal. Or we'll have to do something. But uh, the World Trade Organization has been uh, very unfair to the United States for many, many years. And uh, without it, China wouldn't be China. China wouldn't be where they are right now. I mean, China, that was the vehicle that they used. And I give them great credit. And I also uh, don't give the people that were in my position great credit because, frankly, they let that all happen. But the vehicle was the World Trade Organization. And Roberto and I have a tremendous relationship, and we're going to do something that I think will be very dramatic. Uh, He'll be coming with a lot of his representatives to Washington sometime, maybe next week or the week after, and we'll start working on it. So I'd like to introduce just for briefly uh, Roberto and say a few words on behalf of the WTO, and then I'm going to introduce Larry Kudlow to say exactly where we are in terms of our economy. Some of you know, but we've had some tremendous numbers just over the very uh, recent past. So please, Roberto. Well, thank you, Mr. President, and I think it's uh, uh, fair to say that uh, we have been saying for quite some time that if the multilateral system, if the WTO is to deliver uh, it and perform its role in today's global economy, it has to be updated. It has to be changed. It has to be reformed. Uh, this is an agenda that is squarely before members. I don't think anybody in Geneva uh, uh, misses the point. I think they understand that the uh, the system has not been functioning uh, properly in many areas. That's something that we're trying to address. I'm very happy that uh, in the conversation today with President Trump, uh, he agreed that this is something that needs to happen. The WTO has to change. Uh, we are committed uh, to effect uh, those changes. And this is something that we're serious about. And I am going to be, together with President Trump, uh, as soon as possible, discussing what needs to change, what needs to be uh, uh, effected in the WTO, uh, and we're committed to doing that. And of course, I will be talking to all the other WTO members, making sure that they all understand that this is serious. This is a path that we all have to be on together if we want to make the WTO relevant and performing uh, to today's uh, uh, requirements, uh, frankly. So thank you very much, Mr. President. It's an honor to be with you and with everybody else. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we're, I think we're coming into the new year with a lot of positive momentum in the economy. And again, I want to repeat what President's speech yesterday. These are transformational free enterprise policies, lower tax rates across the board, deregulation, energy independence, and breaking down trade barriers 
uh, for better deals for exporting. Just recently, we've seen all the confidence surveys are strong. Consumer confidence, business confidence, small business confidence. The huge stock market rally, which continues, is, I believe, a sign of business and consumer confidence and predicting an even stronger economy in uh, 2020. Also, lately, um, housing markets are very strong. We've seen some huge numbers in uh, new housing starts and existing uh, and new home sales. That's a great omen. It's a leading indicator. And even um, with softness in manufacturing last year, we're seeing now the uh, IHS um, market surveys for PMI manufacturing up four straight months for the U.S., and I think that's a terrific sign of a comeback. I, I think the president's trade deals have inspired a lot of confidence uh, among large and small businesses, and I think it's going to add at least a half a point to GDP uh, this year. I think we're going to be moving into the 3% zone. We still have to cope with the slowdown in Boeing. We'll see how that plays out. But I think um, USMCA and the China deals are going to add a lot to growth this year and the years ahead. And the great part about this to me, I've been around for a while, is when you look inside, look under the hood, in this growth spurt with 3.5% unemployment and virtually no inflation, which itself is a remarkable development, it is the American middle class, it is the American blue-collar middle class, they have the fastest wage growth, and in fact, the lower wage folks are getting the fastest wage increases, exceeding uh, significantly by, from what their managers are making. And I would add also, as the president has indicated, in this stock market rally, I know it's commonplace to say it only helps a few rich people. That is just not true. Over half the households in this country own shares through 401ks and IRAs and brokerage accounts and so forth. You look at the numbers, and the CEA just published a great slide book on this. The bottom 50% has had a 47% increase in their net wealth, consumer net wealth, between home prices and share prices, and that is a booster rocket to this economy. It not only gives them confidence, it gives them some serious spending power, and the consumer spending numbers bear it out. So ours is an optimistic message, and I think the president really carried the day in his speech uh, yesterday. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Larry. I mean, when you think that soon, it'll start pretty soon. It's already started to a certain extent. I asked them to do it. Uh, China is going to be purchasing more than $250 billion worth of goods from our country. That's massive. Those are numbers that nobody's ever heard of before. And that number can grow. It can grow. With time, it's going to grow substantially, I predict. And then you have the USMCA Mexico-Canada, and that's uh, massive numbers we're talking about there. And we made a deal with Japan, $40 billion. And we made a deal with South Korea. That's a tremendous deal also. That was a horrible deal. We turned it into a, a really good deal. So it was uh, really something. Uh, while we were in... Davos, most of you know this, uh, we met with the world leaders, uh, various world leaders, including the president of the European Commission, who we're going to start negotiating a trade deal with because the European Commission was, frankly, in many ways tougher than China. I say that respectfully, but that's the way it is. They've uh, taken advantage for a long time. and. 
I think at this point, what we have to do is actually listen to the bilateral meeting that they held right here, because I've said this before, the center of everything starts at the European Commission. And the European Commission was the, um, I would say the platform and the initial source of how they were going to get this uh, new world order in place. So just take a listen to this minute of uh, discussions. It's great to be with the president of the European Commission and a woman who's highly respected, I have to say, and I hear a very tough negotiator, which is bad news for us because we're going to talk about a big trade deal, and we've been talking about it for a while, and hopefully we can get something done. Uh, but it's a great honor, and uh, we will be discussing other things also. But I would say trade right now on a deal between ourselves and essentially Europe is something that we all want to be able to make. So thank you very much. Great honor. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure to meet you um, for the first time here uh, in Davos. Um, and uh, I think what uh, we never should forget that we have a long history of a common foundation yes. of a lot of business context, friendship, youth exchange, science, culture since uh, way more than 70 years. So uh, right. the American people and the European people are good friends. And this is what we're going to build on. And indeed, we have issues to discuss and we will negotiate. Right. But I'm looking forward to Thank you this much. relationship. Thank you so much. It's very nice. Good on Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. President, can you say when you'll introduce a motion to dismiss when the Senate trial begins? Uh, that whole thing is a hoax. Uh, it goes nowhere because nothing happened. Uh, the only thing we've done is a great job. We have the strongest country in the world by far, and it was going in the wrong direction. We have the greatest economy we've ever had in the history of our country. And I'm in Europe today because we're bringing a lot of other companies into our country with thousands of jobs, millions of jobs in many cases. So uh, that whole thing is a total hoax. So I'm sure it's going to work out fine. Thank you all very much. Uh, can you believe that he's there in Davos and instead of asking, you know, how's your meetings going? Have you come to some trade deal or anything? Because he's meeting with a snake, Ursula von der Leyen. She is creepy. Okay, so she used to... Um, Okay, so she is the president of the European Commission. And, you know, the European Commission was established in Rome. Of course, everything goes back to Rome, right? In 1957. Uh, this woman, uh, you know, uh, was, uh, how, how do I say... She rose through the ranks in a weird and odd way. In a way that you can't really... Um, arise from if that makes sense obviously her german background helps because she was um she's a german politician she actually served in angela merkel's cabinet uh, you know, she is from Belgium. She speaks Flemish. Um, uh, she moved um, out. Uh, she moved into European nations. Went to the European School in Brussels, uh, and she became the CEO of Balsen, um, which, um, well. 
actually, uh, her father had become the CEO, but she was learning and shadowing off of him. How's that? There we go. So that is how she got into economics and business. Um, she went to the Gottingen University. Uh, she studied economics. Um, and she, in 1978, because they were concerned of uh, communist terrorism, they went to England and... Um, and uh, the reason she went there is because they were scared that her family was going to be kidnapped. Well, she was going to be kidnapped because her family was prominent, you know, in politics, et cetera, et cetera. So she was actually under this is so BS. Can you smell it? Uh, she was under the protection of Scotland Yard. So she was going under an assumed name called Rose Ladson. And so she went to the London School of Economics there. And then um, after that, um, uh, she, uh, you know, changed back her name. Uh, in 1980, she went to, into medicine to Hanover Medical School and she got her medical license. And then she worked uh, at the women's clinic and she got her doctorate uh, in 1991, just so you understand. And then she um, had two kids, twins, lived in California and um, taught epidemiology at Stanford. Uh, well, yeah. She, she, um, her husband, sorry, was teaching at Stanford. She then taught epidemiology at Hanover. And then she also got her MPH, which is the master's of public health from there. Now, um, what's really odd here is, is that she was part of the parliament of lower Saxony in uh, Germany in 2003. So she delved into politics, became the minister of family affairs and youth. Um, and she was part of Angela Merkel's cabinet. And then she became the minister of labor and social affairs from 2009 to 2013. Uh, she was actually very good friends with Barack Hussein Obama. And then she became minister of defense from 2013 to 2015. And then then she took over to being the president of the European Council um, because she went from being the chair of the defense ministers to being the president of it right afterwards. So this woman is pretty, pretty substantial, I would say, um, because she was the one that was procuring military equipment for Germany, uh, KPMG, you know, financial stuff. Uh, they were the ones that were uh, doing all the books and all the financials for um, federal money, uh, federal. And when we talk federal, we're talking German monies. Uh, she uh, became the president of the European Commission just about six months ago. It was in July of 2019, so over six months months ago um, and she became the president uh, because they proposed that she go to you know she take that position so that's pretty that's her in a nutshell this woman has an arcane uh, background. She is not who she says she is. She's a clown um, and a very smart one and was groomed perfectly for where they needed to slaughter in to counter move against what President Trump is trying to do. So when he tells you that they're tougher than China, you better believe it because the European Union doesn't mess about I'll see you all just after this short break and we'll continue talking impeachment and what is really going on. Are they impeaching him 
Because they're scared of him. Mm, I think they're impeaching him. And they're going to keep doing things like that in order to keep themselves out of jail. So how do we make sure that we hold them accountable? We'll talk about that after the break. See you in a bit. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. So we're going to continue on, uh, you know, the um, the Q and A session that President Trump had, uh, where they're asking him questions. I want you guys to listen to what he says uh, in regards to the impeachment and other matters uh, very carefully, because uh, you'll understand that the impeachment like I've said before, is only a roadblock. The impeachment is there so that they can save themselves. And I think, well, let's just take a listen to what he says, and then we'll see what CNN has to say. They're really upset. Congratulations on your show. Thank you very much. They made a very wise decision. Thank you very much. We invite you for an interview whenever oh, you're good. available. Um, can I ask you just to be clear, and for future presidents, is abuse of power an impeachable event? Well, you're going to talk to the lawyers about it, but I will tell you, there's nothing here. I had a very innocent conversation with a very fine gentleman from the Ukraine, and it was based on that. People don't even want to talk about the conversation. I got to watch glimpses in between all of these meetings that I just told you about. I got to watch glimpses of what is taking place, wasting time in Washington. And I watched, they don't talk about my conversation. They don't talk about my transcripts. Remember this, when Schiff made up the phony story and he repeated it to Congress and the world, and it was a totally phony story, then I released the transcript. There was supposed to be a second whistleblower. What happened to him? There was, wait, wait, otherwise I won't do your show. Wait, there was supposed to be an informer. What happened to the informer? All of these people disappeared. And when they saw this transcript, they said, we got problems. But they went ahead because they were already there, because they, they had a phony, concocted story made up. So here's the story. Did nothing wrong. It was a perfect conversation. It was totally appropriate. The best lawyers in the world have looked at it. The Department of Justice has looked at it, given it a sign-off. There was nothing wrong. They never thought I was going to release the conversation. They probably didn't think we had transcribers or we had it transcri transcribed or taped, but they never thought we were going to release it. When we released that conversation, all hell broke out with the Democrats because they say, wait a minute, this is much different than Shifty Schiff told us. So 
we're doing very well. I got to watch enough. I thought our team did a very good job. But honestly, we have all the material. They don't have the material. I ask you because your attorneys say it's not. Alan Dershowitz says the framers of the Constitution did not permit impeachment on grounds like abuse of power or obstruction. They objected open-ended vague criteria. So for future presidents, is abuse of power an impeachable offense? Well, it depends. But if you take a look at this, and from what everybody tells me, all I do is I'm honest. I make great deals. I've made great deals for our country. Now we're working with the WTO. You're probably surprised by that, but there's been a long-term abusive situation to the U.S. I make great deals for our country, and they're honest deals. And when you read that transcription, and by the way, it wasn't one call. It was two calls. Nobody likes to talk about that. There was one call, which was perfect, and then there was a second call, I guess a couple of months later, which was perfect. The president of Ukraine said it was perfect. The foreign minister of Ukraine said it was perfect. So if we have a transcription, we have the call, and we have the person on the other side of the call saying it was good. Now, here's the other thing. They got their money long before schedule. They got all their money. What nobody says is very important to me. Why isn't Germany paying? Why isn't uh, UK paying? Why isn't France paying? Why aren't the European nations paying? Why is it always the sucker, United States? That's one. And the other thing I wanted to check very carefully, and it's very important, is corruption. And we do that, too. This was a perfect call, and I think we're doing very well. We are discussing that already, yes. We would like to see if we can do something. But again, uh, we're doing a trade deal, and it's, uh, it's a very big deal. Phase one is done. Phase two is uh, being discussed. We are discussing aspects of your question, yes. Thank you. Just to clarify uh, on Paula's question, we know that the Senate will set the rules for witnesses, but what did you want? At one point, you demanded a witness. I can live either way. But what do I you can want? live. I'll tell you what I think. It's such a hoax. I think it's so bad for our country. When we have the head of the World Trade Organization here, and he has to listen to this nonsense about a call that was perfect that nobody talks about. I never see them talking about the transcription. I never see them talking about the call because there's nothing to say. You read it. Somebody should just sit there and read it. And everybody's going to say, you mean that's an impeachable event? If that were impeachable, Lyndon Johnson would have had to leave office in his first day. Kennedy would have had to leave office his first day. It's a hoax. And you understand it's a hoax better than anybody. It's a hoax. And that's the way it is. Yeah, go ahead. Mr. President, President, a question on Iran. Initially, you said repeatedly to Americans um, that after Iran retaliated for the Soleimani strike, no Americans were injured. We now know at least 11 U.S. servicemen were airlifted from Iraq. Can you explain the discrepancy? No, uh, I heard that they had headaches and a couple of other things, but I would say, uh, and I can report, it is not very serious. So you don't think potential traumatic brain injury serious? Uh, they told me about it numerous days later. You'd have to ask the Department of Defense. No, I don't consider them very serious injuries relative to other injuries that I've seen. I've seen what Iran has done with their roadside bombs to our troops. I've seen people with no legs and with no arms. I've seen people that were horribly, horribly injured in 
that area, that war. Uh, in fact, many cases put those bombs put there by Soleimani, who's no longer with us. Uh, I consider them to be really bad injuries. No, I do not consider that to be bad injuries, no. Are you automatically going to go to auto I have tariffs, a time or is there, another, is there another avenue other than auto Yeah, great question, actually. Uh, I don't have a timeline, but maybe I do in my own mind. Uh, they have to move relatively quickly, uh, but they have to treat us fairly. Uh, the European Union was formed pretty much for this reason, I suspect. You know, if you really think about it, why was it formed? They formed their airplane company, which does very nicely, and now is doing better than ever because Boeing has not had a a good time of it. They have, uh, they have, uh, they better start recovering fast. I hope they do. They have some good people in there now. They have great people in the company, but they have some good people leading it now. So hopefully that'll be taken care of. But I uh, know I have a, uh, a date in my mind and it's a fairly quick date. And if we're unable to make a deal, then uh, we'll do even better. We'll do even better. But they haven't treated us right. Look, the United States has been losing 150 billion and more for many years. 150 billion, more. I mean, really more than that. With the European Union, they have trade barriers where you can't trade. They have tariffs all over the place. They make it impossible. They are frankly more difficult to do business with than China. We have a great relationship with China now. We had some testy moments, very testy, beyond testy. Worse than a lot of people would understand, but we got it done, and I think phase two will go nicely also. But with the European Union, and frankly, I'll be honest, I wanted to wait till I finished China before I went to work on, respectfully, Europe. But Europe, you know, is so beautiful. I guess a lot of us come indirectly from Europe. Isn't that nice? But they are actually more difficult to do business with than China. All you have to do is ask Boris, but I think Boris is going to be okay, too. I think he's going to come out great. I think he has he had a lot of guts. He's done a terrific job. I think he's in a good position, uh, which they would have never been able to do before Boris. Uh, I have a date. I have a very specific date in my mind. Before or after the election? Uh, election before. before. I, think, I think we'll have a deal before. With, with the EU? Yeah, I think so. But they have to do that. I mean, I don't want to... Look, I'm not saying it from strength or from weakness. I'm just saying they have to do it. They wanted to make a deal, This our nation, our country, wanted to make a deal under President Obama. The EU refused to talk to him. And then they said, no, no, we like it the way it is. Of course they like it the way it is. They're making 150 billion plus, right? And as you know, President Bush was desperate to make a deal. They wouldn't even talk to him. Me, they're talking to. And we'll have a deal. If we don't. Okay, so like he said again, the EU is a very big problem. They weren't talking to previous presidents. Come on, that's what they say, you know, that's what they say because they're the epicenter, right? So they're in charge, okay? So now where do we go from here is the question. So he wants to get a deal before elections. So can you make a deal to shift that power? Can he make a deal to get it done? Of course he can. He diffused China before he made a deal. You know, the Ukraine and Iran doesn't just diffuse the power that the Democrats and they have. But some of the they are sitting right there, nameless, faceless, in the European Commission.
So there we go. Deal. We'll do even better. Yes, um, is it true that you're considering extending the travel ban? And if so, yes. to which countries? So we have a travel ban. It's a very powerful ban. Uh, and a lot of, uh, I heard a reporter recently say he lost the ban in court. They didn't say that we won it in the Supreme Court. I'd say that's a little deceptive, John, wouldn't you? He said he lost the travel ban. I didn't lose the travel ban. The travel ban was lost in the lower courts and won in the Supreme Court two years ago. Um, no, we are. We're adding a couple of countries to it. We have to be safe. Our country has to be safe. You see what's going on in the world. Our country has to be safe. So we have a very strong travel ban, and we'll be adding a few countries to it. About the region or the country. Well, you're gonna, it's going to be announced very shortly. Okay? Yeah, tell us, is this another Muslim ban so we can just call you racist again? We want to recycle that. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, in, in regards to the proceedings going on in the Senate, would you like to see this over quickly? Would you like to see a thorough examination of the facts? Uh, what did you make of the dust-up between the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and Gerald Nadler last night? And are you absolutely against John Bolton testifying? Uh, well, you're asking a lot of questions. First of all, uh, Gerald Nadler, I've known him a long time. He's a sleazebag. Everybody knows that. Uh, Pat Cipollone is a high-quality human being. I was very impressed with Pat. He had great emotion yesterday. Uh, Pat's a brilliant guy, but... I've never seen that emotion, and that's real emotion. That's because he knows this is a hoax. And uh, I was very proud of the job he did. I've known uh, I've known Jerry Nadler for a long time. He's opposed many of my jobs. I got them all built, very successfully built in New York. But uh, so we have yet another fight, isn't it? A, isn't it amazing? Isn't it surprising? Isn't it amazing? But uh, if if you look at you know other aspects or other parts of your your question. I think that um, the I would rather go the long way. I would rather interview Bolton. I would rather interview a lot of people. Uh, the problem with John is that it's a national security problem. You know, you can't have somebody who's at national security. And uh, if you think about it, John, he knows some of my thoughts. He knows what I think about leaders. Uh, what happens if he reveals what I think about a certain leader and it's not very positive and that I have to deal on behalf of the country? It's going to be very hard. It's going to make the job very hard. Uh, he knows other things. And uh, I don't know if we left on the best of the terms. I would say probably not, you know. And so you don't like people testifying when uh, they didn't leave on good terms. And that was due to me, not due to him. And so we'll see what happens. But when you have a national security, you could call it presidential prerogative. You could just call it the way I look at it. I call it national security for national security reasons. Executive privilege, they say. Uh, so that would, John would certainly fit into that. When you're a national security advisor, like this gentleman is doing a fantastic job, Robert, um, I just think it's very hard. And I've always gotten along. I've actually gotten along with John Bolton. He didn't get along with other people, a lot of other people. But when he knows uh, my thoughts on certain people and other governments, and we're talking about massive trade deals and war and peace and all these different things that we talk about, uh, that's really a very important national security problem, I think, having somebody. Uh, other people, uh, Mick Mulvaney is 
probably around here someplace. I'd love to have Mick go, but I think that uh, he's really expressed himself very well when he did a Chris Wallace interview. That was a very, very powerful interview. That was a long, tough, Chris is a tough interviewer, a very talented guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's not much he can add. He's been, he's been great. Uh, I would like to have, I'll tell you what I don't like, though. I'd love to have Mike Pompeo testify. But again, that's a national security problem. But I'd love to have Mike Pompeo, but it's a national security problem. I'd love to have Rick Perry. Rick Perry has asked me, I'd love to testify. Please let me testify. Because he knows this is all a hoax. He understands it better than most. And Rick Perry would love to testify. But we're dealing with national security. We're dealing with one other thing. Our country has been tied up with this hoax from the day I came down the escalator. We've been fighting it. I've been fighting it from the day I've been elected. I would say probably long before. It could be long before I came down the escalator. That's, some people have said that, which is hard to believe. It, wait, wait, John. It's hard to believe. We've been fighting this. I would rather have, personally, I'd rather go the long route. It's horrible for our country. Our country has to get back to business. We have people that are corrupt, like Adam Schiff, who misquotes, I don't mean misquotes, makes up a statement. He had no idea that I was going to release the transcript. He never thought I'd do that. And for that, I thank the president of Ukraine because we got their approval. He had no idea I was going to do that. But these are corrupt people, some of them. And some of them are just playing the political game. But if you look at the poll numbers, my poll numbers are the highest they've ever been. If you look at the funding numbers, if you look at what the money raised by the Republican Party has just set a record. Nobody's ever done this before. It's because of the impeachment hoax. Sorry, I've got three quick ones too, Mr. President, if you don't mind. Three? Three, yes. Well, my husband has three. That means six. No, six for the family. Thank you very much. Thanks for appreciating the family. Do you plan to show up in any way, shape, or form at your trial? Number two, you called Kenneth Starr a disaster in the past. Do you still feel that way about him now? And three, Love Parnas has come forward and said that you knew everything that he was doing in your He's brain. a con man. Okay. okay so Ready? Let me answer that's that not one. True? I don't know him. Okay, Other than know. he's uh, sort of like a groupie. He shows up at fundraisers. Okay, so I don't know anything about him. I watched Rudy. Rudy is a terrific person, great crime fighter, the best mayor in the history of New York City by far, solved the crime problem in New York. And I think it's very unfair the way the media has treated Rudy Giuliani, I will say this. Uh, Parnas, I don't know, other than he probably contributed to the campaign along with tens of thousands of other people. Uh, and I take, I mean, I was this weekend, I was taking pictures with hundreds of people. Uh, they, they contribute to the Republican Party, and I stand there and I take pictures, and every once in a while I look at somebody, I say, gee, I wonder when that picture is going to be in the New York Times or the Washington Post or on Fox uh, you know, so it's one of those things. I think Rudy is a high-quality person. So why is he not on your legal team? Why is he because not I don't want I don't want there to be a conflict. Clothing. I'd love to have Rudy on my team, but you know, he could be a witness at some point if this whole sham continues. Uh, I would love to have Rudy on the team. He, Rudy is on my team, just so you understand. But I'd love to have him up there. But it could be that he'd have a conflict. It could be. But Rudy Giuliani is somebody that. I think the press has been very unfair to greatest mayor in the history of New York. Think of it. And one of the greatest crime fighters of the last hundred years. And he hates to see what's happening because he knows corruption really better than anybody.
Okay, go ahead. So Ken Starr is a, a uh, terrific man. I did make that statement because, frankly, I didn't think that uh, Bill Clinton should have been impeached. And I thought it was terrible. I didn't know Ken Starr, but I didn't think that Bill Clinton should be impeached, should have been impeached. Uh, and I was pretty vocal about that. Uh, I didn't know Ken, but what I did know is he was very smart. He was very tough. He was very talented. But in a certain way, I was sticking up for Clinton, for Bill Clinton. And, uh, you know, I felt, I sort of still feel that way. I mean, what he did was nothing good. There was a lot of lying going on. There were a lot of things, a lot of bad things. Now, with me, there's no lying. There's no nothing. They have nothing. They don't even have a crime. They say there's the only one that's ever been impeached, and he didn't commit a crime. I didn't commit a crime. And then you get into high crimes and misdemeanors. But I didn't commit a crime. So, no, I have great respect for Ken, but I didn't think, frankly, that Bill Clinton should have been impeached. So what do you think? Will you show up at your trial any day? I'd love to go. Wouldn't that be great? So Wouldn't that be beautiful? Go? I don't know. I'd sort of love to sit right in the front row and stare at their corrupt faces. I'd love to do it. So I don't know. Don't don't keep talking because I may you may convince me to do it. Do you think Cipollone would want you there? I think they might have a problem. I think they might. And by the way, I think I think they've I think they've done a really good job. And I think the other side has so lied. I watched the lies from Adam Schiff. He'll stand, he'll look at a microphone, and he'll talk like he's so aggrieved. These two guys, these are major sleazebags. They're very dishonest people. Very, very dishonest people. When somebody will make up a statement that I made, when you remember the statement, eight times quid pro quo, eight times, think of it. But none of the articles of impeachment have quid pro quo uh, in them. So now, in the meantime, I just wanted to say uh, it's really important that uh, we just listen really short clips of bilateral meetings of the president. So this is where we're going to switch gears and we're going to get into foreign policy because it's really important. So the first one is his meeting with... um, uh, with Iraq. So he met and well, thank spoke. Thank you very much. It's great to be with the president Sorry. of Iraq. The president of Iraq sat down with President Trump and they had a meeting, but he also had another one too with Kurdistan. Now I've talked about Kurdistan before. I did tell you that Mike Pompeo is seeking to do this. What we're seeing this trife in there in the Middle East is the redrawing of borders. And you're going to see that coming to fruition very shortly. And we are obviously working on a lot of things together. We're working on military. We're working on ISIS. We're working on, we have a whole host of uh, very difficult uh, things to discuss and some very, very positive things also. And uh, we've been friends and the relationship is very good. And I just want to thank you very much. It's an important opportunity to meet President Trump, to talk about the developments in our neighborhood. These are challenging times, difficult times, and I look for a very fruitful and candid conversation with the President. Uh, We have had an enduring relationship, and the United States has been a partner to Iraq, and in the war against ISIS, this mission needs to be accomplished, and I believe you and I share the same mission for a stable, sovereign Iraq that is at peace with itself and at peace with its neighbors. Right, thank you very much. What is the plan for flying out U.S. troops from Iraq? Well, we're talking about a lot of different things, and uh, you'll be hearing whatever we do, but 
they like what we're doing and we like them and we've had a, a very good relationship. I can only speak for my administration. I won't speak for past administrations, frankly, but we've had a very good relationship and we're down to a very low number. We're down to 5,000, so we're down to a very low number, historically low, and uh, we'll see what happens. Are you still considering sanctions against Iraq? We'll see what happens, because we Mr. do have Sally? to do things on our terms. We right? have a lot of common interests to fight against extremism, stability in the right. neighborhood, a sovereign Iraq that is stable, friends of the neighbors, and friends of the United States. And we're Oh, what's that? Didn't we just bomb in Iraq to take out the Iranian leader? And if you look at the Iraqi president, he's like, look, we want a sovereign Iraq means free. We want to be able to stand on our own two feet and be friends with our neighbors and the United States. Key statements, very important statements, completely overlooked. We're also involved with them in their oil business. And uh, that's always been very important from their standpoint and from our standpoint. So we have a lot of very positive things to talk about. But we are down to a low number, and we've been there for quite a while, so we'll make a determination. Thank you all very much. Thank you for us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to do a news conference today. Uh, we have one other meeting, and then we're going to be doing a news conference right after this. So he, he sat there with the president pretty, it was a pretty good one. And here is the rival-ish one. Well, thank you very much. It's great Take to be listen. with President Barzani of Kurdistan. And we have a meeting schedule for a long time. We've wanted to meet. We've worked together very well. Uh, as you know, uh, we left Syria from the standpoint of... Kurdistan, just so you guys know, doesn't have any borders, right? It's in Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. They have no borders. They're kind of like nomads. No one's giving them actual borders, even though they call themselves a nation, okay? I want to make that clear. ...of the border, and that's worked out great with Turkey. It's worked out far better than anybody ever thought possible. They have the so-called safe zone, and I appreciate everything you've done to keep it as safe as possible. Very importantly, as you know, we have the oil. And uh... gosh darn those commercials, man. Let me restart that because we missed a portion of it. Let's do it. It's great to be with President Barzani of Kurdistan. And we have a meeting schedule for a long time. We've wanted to meet. We've worked together very well. Uh, as you know, uh, we left Syria from the standpoint of the border. And that's worked out great with Turkey. It's worked out far better than anybody ever thought possible. They have the so-called safe zone, and I appreciate everything you've done to keep it as safe as possible. But uh, very importantly, as you know, we have the oil, and uh, we left soldiers for the oil because we take the oil, and we're working on that, and uh, we have it very nicely secured. We also have thousands of ISIS prisoners. Uh, we've taken over 100% of the caliphate. And it's a uh, very interesting region, but we've had a tremendous relationship, and it's great to be with you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. President. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Please, would you like to yeah. say something? Uh, I would like to take this opportunity to thank you, Mr. President, to receive us, you know, in Davos. As you said, you know, we've been uh, quite a long time waiting right. for that moment. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your support. So we did um, defeat ISIS together. Right. 
So, and um, on behalf of uh, people, I mean, in Kurdistan, I would like to e express our thanks and gratitude to your leadership and your support. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank really you. great. Thank, thank you. you very much. Sir. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Everybody. Mr. President, do you have a plan to contain the coronavirus in the U.S.? We do have a plan, and we think it's going to be uh, handled very well. We've already handled it very well. Uh, CDC has been terrific, very great professionals, and uh, we're in very good shape. And I think China's in very good shape also. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, he's not doing with that whole, oh, yeah, we have a virus. Everybody get vaccinated super quick. Uh, this deployment was not now right we've had a lot of people that have been very sick with pneumonias unable to shake them off it's really really important stuff right there so um he kind of blew that off when it's supposedly an emergency alert this is where everyone's running to cvs to get their vaccines like idiots uh because you know that's what people do sometimes now i want you guys to to um think Today, everything we've listened to was impeachment, our president doing great, impeachment, our president talking with leaders you wouldn't expect and saying things you don't expect, impeachment, and it's pretty, pretty, it's a pretty big deal. And so, you know, all of us know that this whole, um, impeachment is a hoax they want to remove him from office not because they want to remove him but because they don't want him to be president anymore and not only that the more they have this type of controversy the more they can hide right so when this is over and they lose they come they'll come back with something else and then something else the only way to beat this is to make sure the clowns like Schiff and Pelosi and Nadler don't get reelected, period. That's basically what has to be done. So this is how it works. I want you guys to listen to Fredo and how upset he is about the GOP blocking the Democrat effort to, to subpoena documents. This is really funny. Take a listen. Uh, early in this process, literally the first day, admonishing both sides. And it came at that that moment a little bit later on when they the council started to go more nose to nose with each other directly. I'll play a little for the audience. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the president's council in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, in the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging, and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that highest standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. What do you think of that, Senator? Well, I don't fault him for that. That's part of his job. And if he, if he believed that uh, there was a, a, a breakdown or a, 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 de, a degradation of some of the decorum, then that's, his, that's the determination he makes. But that's part of his job. But what do you think about that enforcement of uh, civil discourse? Uh, it's certainly something we haven't seen in big supply in politics these days. Yeah, look, it's bound to happen. These are, these are strongly held beliefs on both sides and, and differing opinions. And again, I think the, 
the, the weight of this is, is such that you're going to have a lot of fierce argumentation. But I, I think what, what came out of tonight uh, was a very clear demonstration of a, of a fundamental difference here when it comes to witnesses and documents. This idea that, that we'll, we'll get to it later, I just don't think is, is the reality. I think there's an, an effort to, to rush. And I do think that the word cover-up is not too strong a word in this instance. It seems like from the beginning, Leader McConnell has tried to design this resolution, which would govern, which will govern the trial now, now that it's passed, even though we voted against it. Um, I think he's designed it uh, in the president's in the president's favor. And what I don't understand is why would a Republican majority and a Republican president be afraid to put any Republican witnesses under oath? Most of the witnesses we've seen already who've been under oath in the House were Republicans. These are Republican officials, and we're only asking for four, who would be under oath. Why are you concerned about that? Why would you fear that? You should embrace it because some of that testimony may be in your favor. But for some reason, they seem to want, unless there's some dramatic change in the next couple of hours or days, they seem to want no witnesses, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. Senator Casey, you'll probably hear a lot more of the same tomorrow as you did today in the context of why the Republicans believe uh, they've heard enough already. Thank you very much, sir, on such an important day for taking us inside the room and what you expect going forward. Good luck to you in uh, discharging your duty. Thanks, Chris. Day one. 13 hours long, senators were bound to fight, find ways to fight the tedium. Certainly going to be some yawns, some note-taking. Can't be checking your email, email, though. You're not supposed to have your phone. Athena Jones has been following it all on Capitol Hill. Presidential historian Tim Naftali also joins me. Athena, great to see you. What did you hear? I tried to get Senator Bob Casey to give me some color in there about what he saw and what he didn't see. He wouldn't give me anything. He said he didn't see anybody doing anything other than paying studious attention. Well, luckily, we had our whole uh, a bunch of our CNN uh, Hill team uh, in the Senate gallery watching hour after hour as this trial as this trial uh, inched along, as this debate inched along, and we saw the mood kind of light at the beginning. Senators chatting with each other, whispering, even though uh, they take a, there's a proclamation at the beginning of every day saying that all shall keep silence on pain of imprisonment. There was some talking, but over the course of the debate, over the many hours, uh, you saw a lot of people clearly. Taking a toll on them, folks yawning, getting up to stretch their legs. Uh, early on, there was note passing, sometimes with the help of pages who helped uh, carry notes from one senator to the other or fill water glasses. You saw people appearing to nod off at times or at least close their eyes and then uh, pretty quickly straighten up in their chair uh, a few minutes later. Some people uh, taking copious notes. Of course, we don't know what they were writing, uh, but some of those note takers were interesting. Uh, people like uh, Corey Gardner, the senator from Colorado. Colorado, who's facing a tough re-election uh, battle. Also, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. So some of the very folks, the moderates, uh, that we we're going to be looking at uh, to see whether they uh, join Democrats in, in the call for mm. witnesses and documents later in the trial. They were taking copious notes. There was also a lot of candy and uh, gum being shared. Uh, uh, Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania brought candy, uh, some of it from Hershey, uh, Hershey's, which is based sure. in Pennsylvania, uh, and that sort of thing. So a, a lot of uh, senators trying to do all they could to, to, to pay attention, to stay awake, and, and to, you know, stretch their legs. Chris. All right, Athena, thank you very much. The 
Yeah, it's really important that we know that they're stretching their legs <laughs> and they're bored and they're passing notes. They're really upset. They're really, really upset. The When they did their live stream, right? When they were talking about their live stream on CNN, they were freaking out. They were so upset. But Hannity made it clear um, and I'm going to play a bit of his clip where impeachment will have real consequences Well, it's now official. for the presidency and for the United States. It will. It will have consequences. And what are those consequences is the question. As we call it the Schumer Schiff Sham Show, it is now proceeding in the U.S. Senate, as you see on your screen. Well, most of you are likely working today. I want to bring you the full comprehensive rundown, all that has happened earlier uh, what is ahead in this process, why it matters, it doesn't matter. The Democrats, of course, they have been led by somebody who's compromised in this very case, somebody who's lied about this very case. I call him the congenital liar. That would be Adam Schiff and his comrades. They have literally been spewing BS for hours and hours. It is still going on. We're going to point out something the rest of the media will never tell you. The many lies that were actually told today will give you the truth, will give you the facts. We'll bring it to you night after night. We will give you the insight. We'll give you all the day's developments. And sadly, we'll talk about what is a great divide in this country as a result of this. Like last week, while the president did what he was doing, what he said many people were saying was impossible. Last week, you remember, the president Got a two-year, $220 billion trade deal with China that greatly benefits American, let's see, farmers, American workers, service industry, the energy sector, uh, protecting and creating jobs in manufacturing, jobs we were once told are never coming back, and helping to save jobs in our great auto industry here in America. $220 billion over two years. At the same time, simultaneously, what was Nancy Pelosi doing? solemnly and prayerfully smiling and taking pictures of her and what really are her do-nothing Democratic colleagues and giving out, remember, the commemorative impeachment pins of hers. Now, while all eyes were on the Schumer-Schiff-Sham impeachment show, we will show you what the president was actually doing today, a tale of two Americas. We have a lot of news tonight. Let me dip in right now. This is Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, up again today. It's an organization that works for Congress. Do you know who disagrees with the GAO? Don't take it from me. They do. They sent you articles of impeachment that makes no claim of any violation of any law. By the way, you know what also doesn't? You can search high and low on the articles of impeachment. You know what it doesn't say? Quid pro quo. Because there wasn't any. Only in Washington would someone say that it's wrong when you don't spend taxpayer dollars fast enough, even if you spend them on time. Now let's talk about the Judiciary Committee for a second. Two days in the Judiciary Committee. Two days. All right, as warranted, as warranted we will dip in and out, but we're not going to torture you with... And although I will say Pat Cipollone, Jay Sekulow uh, and the president's team were pretty amazing today. We'll show you the highlights of all of this. A lot of this, though, to be very, very blunt, is pointless, monotonous, redundant. And there is really absolutely nothing new in terms of what we know as it relates to Ukraine and impeachment that we don't already know. Now, only now it is real. It will have real consequences on the rule of law 
the power of the presidency, executive privilege, and the country and our future. This has been a three-plus year, don't let anyone else convince you otherwise, of what really has resulted in a never-ending temper tantrum by Democrats that have done nothing that I can think of to serve you, the American people. And I mean nothing. Can you think of a single thing that they have done for we, the people? Have they made you more safe and secure in your home? Have they created jobs and prosperity for the American people? Well, after eight years of Biden-Obama, things weren't working out very well. We're going to show you all that the president has done in a few minutes, and it is deep and it is profound, and it has been under very difficult circumstances and a never-ending series of attacks and allegations and impeachment from starting since two days after he got elected. Then, of course, we have the propaganda state TV media mob, friends of all things radical, extreme, and socialist. All of this culminating in this, what is an unconstitutional abuse of power by Congress. None of what has gone on today and what they are doing is warranted. None of it. None of this is good for the country. Everyone in the Senate knows how this will end. You at home know how this will end. There is no suspense. There's no mystery. Question only will be, the only mystery is a matter of when. There will be drama, and we'll carry it at times about whether witnesses should be called and the drama that could cause real permanent damage to the office of the presidency. That would be a fight on executive privilege that even George Washington used. And in 287 days, I have really good news tonight. You, the American people, thankfully, and I mean that, you get the final say. In 287 days, you can shock the world again. You, the American people, in one sense, are the real jurors and in my honest opinion, you never take a jury for granted. The Democrats have overreached. They have done nothing to serve the American people. They have abused power. And what they're doing is unconstitutional. It is sad. And this impeachment charade is an exercise in futility. And it is only a matter of time before the president will get acquitted and vindicated. And let me be clear. The Democrats, they do not have a case. And in just a few short minutes, their half-baked arguments were literally ripped to shreds. We just see Pat Cipollone up there. Let's give you a little background of what was unfolding earlier today by the president's, for the first time, the president's defense, the president's expert legal counsel. Let's take a look. Mr. Schiff also talked about a trifecta. I'll give you a trifecta. During the proceedings that took place before the Judiciary Committee, the president was denied the right to cross-examine witnesses. The president was denied the right to access evidence. And the president was denied the right to have counsel present at hearings. That's a trifecta. A trifecta that violates the Constitution of the United States. We don't waive executive privilege. And there's a reason we keep executive privilege. And we assert it when necessary. And that is to protect, to protect the Constitution and the separation of powers. Let's remember how we all got here. They made false allegations about a telephone call. The President of the United States declassified that telephone call and released it to the public. How's that for transparency? Overwhelming evidence to impeach the President of the United States. And then they come here on the first day and they say, you know what, we need some more evidence. 
And the American people won't stand for it, I'll tell you that right now. They're not here to steal one election, they're here to steal two elections. As these events were unfolding today, mark this down. This is the very first time the president's legal team has had any opportunity to defend him in Congress. Senate Majority Leader McConnell, he is following the precedent set in the Clinton impeachment trial. Each side fairly will get 24 hours to present their case. That will be followed by 16 hours of questions. Now, let's compare that to what happened in the House. Remember, all the precedent that was set, all the considerations that were given to Bill Clinton and his legal team were all kicked to the side. They didn't even have a formal vote. It wasn't the result of any independent investigation. It was, we, as we now know, crafted in secret in the basement of the House. Now we know that, yes, the congenital liar, Adam Schiff, lied. Oh, we'd love to hear from the whistleblower when his office had contact with the hearsay whistleblower, non-whistleblower. And then they auditioned witnesses. Then they cherry-picked the evidence, what they would leak. Why? To propagandize you, the American people. The majority of House Republicans were blocked, or in one case, actually forcibly removed from Schiff's basement behind closed door audition proceedings. The president's legal team was never allowed to participate. That was not the case with Bill Clinton. They were not allowed to present evidence or call witnesses or craft a defense, as was granted Bill Clinton. The president was afforded no due process, no basic fairness. The process was rigged from beginning to end. Every single due process consideration that Republicans under Newt Gingrich gave Bill Clinton and his legal team and his attorneys were denied this president and this president's attorneys. And because Democrats wanted to enjoy their long Christmas vacation, they had to urgently and solemnly and prayerfully ram through two bogus articles of impeachment in record time. They had to get it done. Urgent, urgent, urgent. So they could go on vacation and then hold it back for a couple of weeks. Uh, and now what do we see today? Whining and moaning and complaining that the Senate trial isn't fair. Really? We're going to get lectures on fairness and due process from the people that gave no due process to the president in the House? What? Well, it's not just a due process. Let's get something straight, all right? Bill Clinton committed crimes. He actually committed crimes. And for anyone saying any different, like Adam Schiff, uh, it's actually crimes. It was crimes that did it. Crimes that got him in there. He raped Monica Lewinsky. I don't care what anybody says. She was not his side piece. No side piece holds on to a dress with, you know, evidence ever, 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 ever speaking as a woman. So this is what's important that there were crimes here. We don't have crimes. He didn't commit any crimes, nothing that's impeachable. He was upset that he appealed to the court. They were upset that he went to the court to reinforce his authority. Uh, Justice Roberts better be very careful. Very, very careful. Everybody needs to be very careful because it's just to cover okay, their tushies. It. Now listen to Snakey Graham, what he has to say. Americans have long days. Uh, a couple things. I've been involved in two impeachment trials. This is the second one. Uh, I just want to make Audio an observation. Audio is really here. bad here. What the House managers were proposing yesterday is basically to destroy the institution of the presidency as we know it. Make it naked when it comes to partisan impeachment. Not have a venue to go to court and litigate privileges 
that have been exercised by prior presidents. When it comes to Donald Trump, they're willing to destroy the institution of the office in the name of getting him. So, bottom line, the Clinton impeachment was conducted by outside counsel. There's none here. Ken Starr spent five years investigating the president before we took up the matter uh, in the House. The president was allowed to cross-examine Ken Starr at the uh, House Judiciary Committee. He recommended 11 grounds for impeachment, and President Clinton utilized the courts extensively on his behalf. Robert Mueller was an outside counsel appointed to investigate this president. <clears throat> I want the public to know that this president cooperated with Mr. Mueller. He turned over a million documents. His lawyer testified for 30 hours, and after two years of investigation with 19 lawyers, 40 FBI agents, 2,000 subpoenas, and 500 search warrants, they decided to take no action. They said there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and when it came to obstruction of justice, they did not recommend any action. I thought that would be the end of it. I actually introduced legislation to say that Robert Mueller could not be removed except for cause, because the president felt like the Mueller investigation was a witch hunt. I did not. The president was frustrated. Wow. Lindsey Graham looks really different, you guys. He looks really, really different, like physically different. I urge you when you have some time to kind of just look at Lindsey Graham six months ago and Lindsey Graham right now. I would say look at Lindsey Graham two months ago and look at Lindsey Graham right now. Because he said he did nothing wrong. I can understand that. But it was important for me to make sure that the country would have somebody to look at these allegations because they're very serious. And I supported no, Mueller's ability to look. And he looked for a long time. And I thought it would be over. Mr. Schiff said yesterday what they did in the House was just like what we did with Clinton. That's a that, lie because it was partisan. So it was a super lie. What he said is a super lie, not what they did in, with Clinton. So it's rubbish. They're lying. Not what they did with Clinton. I don't know why they keep bringing up Clinton. You know, this impeachment is a sham. We all know it, period. I mean, there's no if, ands, or buts, okay? We all know it. That's the way it is. So listen to what else he has to say here, um, which is pretty interesting. That is absolutely untrue. From the time they authorized impeachment, it took 48 days. Not two years with Mueller, not five years like Clinton, but 48 days. The fact-finding process was done in the Intel Committee, not the Judiciary Committee. The president was denied a right to counsel in the Intel Committee and could not request witnesses. They spent one day in the Judiciary Committee. Go back and look at the tapes of how long Ken Starr testified before the Senate, excuse me, the House Judiciary Committee, of which I was a part. What we've done for the first time in American history is an impeach a president without outside counsel involved in a 48-day period. But here's what struck me the most. One of the House managers said, the reason we didn't go to court 
or we didn't want to go through the courts is that we couldn't impeach him before the election. They withdrew from the Cumberland, Cumber, uh, the Deputy uh, National Security Advisor case where the Deputy National Security Advisor went to court and said, tell me what to do, Judge. The House actually withdrew the subpoena because they didn't want the court process to stop the impeachment train. They would have the United States Senate create an impeachment process where the president would not be allowed to go to Article III courts to argue privileges that had been argued in every other impeachment trial and have been argued by presidents since George Washington. So, scam. That's what this tells you. Scam, 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 scam. That is exactly what it is. And until we understand that indeed... This is one of the most civil, silent wars you have ever seen in your life because this is war. It is complete war. And I'm going to say it again. It's war. And this is what draining the swamp looks like. You guys don't get it. War among nations. Trade is money. Money is what drives war. And it has always driven war for ages, for eons to come from empires rising and falling. This is a war to maintain our ability to be free. Tomorrow, I'll see you guys here. Same time, same place. 12 to 2 Eastern time only on Red State Talk Radio. Until then, God bless, stay safe, and have a fabulous evening. And the extended episode will be uploaded shortly. Have a good one.